jump jet, now approaching platform four, is the Harrier bound for New York. Choking clouds of coal dust from the disused railway yard near St Pancras. At the controls, squadron leader Leckie Thompson was to set up one of the best times in the Daily Mail transatlantic air race, six hours, 11 minutes, 57 seconds, from the post office tower to the Empire State Building. and uh, welcome to BMTV and podcasts. I'm Tim Morris and we're here today with Alex Pickering. Hi Alex. Hello Tim. Hi there. Um, now I was trying to think how far back it was when we met you, probably about a year or so. I I, yeah and it was at the, uh, the Transatlantic Harrier, the occasion of a talk by Paul Griffiths who restored the Transatlantic Air Race Harrier from 1969. Um, so if you could tell us perhaps a little bit about your association with the museum, and then we'll move on to talk about that as well. Okay, well, there are two people that I would blame for being involved in all this. One of which you've already referred to, which is Paul Griffiths. The other is an old friend of mine called Dave Harris. Uh, he was also a Brooklyn's member, whom I first met not far away from, I guess, where you are at the moment, at the top of the Test Hill, which used to be the apprentice training school of Vickers Armstrongs. I'm now talking some 60 years ago in the 1950s. My gosh, that seems a long time ago. Uh, that certainly is now. <laughs> so that's really where we started from. Dave is this long friend of mine. I met him the first day I went to the uh, apprentice training school as to start work for Vickers Armstrong's Aircraft Limited at Brooklands. Out of the blue I got a call from Dave as one did from time to time. We'd had a lot of fun together as, as youths and as undergraduates at Southampton studying aeronautical engineering and he, in his inimitable way, said, Hi, Alex, Pickers, how are you doing? I tell you what, I've just read in the magazine that there's, there's a nutter who's bought a Harrier. I'm just going to display it and talk about it at Brooklands. Are you interested? Because you used to rabbit on about how you were involved with a Harrier when you were a young Air Force officer. With that, he put the phone down, down and I was uh, stung with not knowing where to go next. I, I got onto the inimitable um, internet and looked up Brooklyn's museum, got a phone number and started ringing in to say, look, I understand there's going to be a talk on the Harrier. How do I get along? Am I allowed in to see this? And I think I got a, a bit of mystification to the other. I got passed from pillar to post as you do on the telephone these days until I suddenly found this 
very courteous gentleman who was listening to everything I say. I think his name was Tim Morris. No, I'm, I've never heard of him, I'm afraid, no. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he seemed to be interested in everything I said, which I couldn't explain. The due day came, and I got there in good time. And this nutter, who'd bought the Harrier and had re restored it, gave a most spectacular talk, which was highly entertaining and indeed inspiring. And he was fun. And as he went through it, I suddenly realized that this was the actual Harrier that you now have on display outside there. The actual Harrier that I refueled on the transatlantic air race. Yeah, when, when you popped up at the end of that talk and said, I was one of the refueling pilots. Not only one of them, but the lead. Having, the lead one, indeed. Having indeed organised all the trials in double quick time, because when the idea of entering the Harrier into the race was first mooted, it hadn't even got a refuelling fit. And those of you who are geographically knowledgeable will know that the distance between London and New York is a little bit more than the Harrier's range. Actually, rather a lot more than the Harrier's range. But, but Hawker Siddeley were very keen to do this um, because they wanted to display the Harrier to the American, particularly the Marine Corps. They thought they got a good chance of selling it, which in fact proved to be so. Range of a Harrier then? Well, some, in those days, this is the early version of the Harrier, sort of early production machines, something like seven, seven or 800 miles. And, it, and it's about 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. That's absolutely right. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, we can see where refueling was needed then. Well, that's one of the things that's at the back of the mind of whenever you're refueling anybody, you're giving away fuel. And we had the ability in the Victor to give away fuel from any tank so you could empty yourself of fuel as you, if you wanted. You always had that niggle at the back. Am I eating into my reserves? How far have I got to go home? How much fuel have I got left? How accurate are my fuel gauges? And that's why you always have that niggle there at the back of your mind. So anyway, that's how I got to be involved. And I think you said to me at the end of the evening, something like, how'd you like to have a go at giving a, a talk on refueling the Harrier? Which I took up, I would because that's one of the few subjects in the world I know anything about. Now, now, as I said in my mumbled introduction, we do have a couple of people that are involved in the air race. And the one gentleman is sitting right in front of me, who happened to be a valiant Victor, sorry, I'm going to get in trouble, Victor refueling pilot on that very race. Good evening, sir. Hello, Paul. What a delight it was to listen to you talking about this aircraft. I think it's one of the most brilliant bits of engineering one could ever have. It's so different, and everything about it is, is just immense and special. As a Victor man, I was delighted to be able to refuel Tom Lecky Thompson as lead captain, and furthermore do all the uh, trials of of the refuel for refueling because people didn't really know how much fuel it would use, how long it would go, because it didn't even have a probe <laughs> designed when the decision was made to enter the air race. So I think it's amazing that that, that is uh, the, the way it was. And I don't think that would be as easily done today as it was right. then. Yeah. And I think what you've done is brave and terrific but it's an example to other people of what can be done when you step away from rules and regulations <laughs> and do the, do what's right. So thank you very much for that. And let me just ask you one question. <laughs> There's, um, it's so different between the Victor and, and, the, uh, and the Harrier. I'd love to see a Victor done like this. But it, but, 
there are a few differences between the Victor and the Harrier. Uh, some <laughs> of them quite surprising. <laughs> we could probably talk for quite a long time about. We might have to back you, have you back for another talk. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> what can and cannot, cannot be done so well, but things surprised me about the Harrier are um, all the way across the Atlantic. I had two navigators and heaven knows how much navigation equipment. The mm. Harrier, one pilot only, with a far, far better navigation system mm -hmm. that could tell within half a mile across the Atlantic. So the only, the only other thing that, that I'd like to say is that the Victor was so good that if it was done the same way as you've done the Harrier, I'd love to see you do that. There would be a few snags you could compare, compare sort of runway requirements mm. uh, and things like that. What would you see as the big difference about the Harrier that's so different? Well, the, the Victor, I mean, as we know, I think there was an accidental flying example, wasn't there, not so long ago? <laughs> Um, which is, I mean, I think it's an amazing airplane. All the V-bombers were just incredible. And, you know, we know XH-558, the Vulcan. What, what a fantastic uh, thing to get that back in the air. Sadly, now that's uh, no longer flying. Um, I don't know. I've said to Chris Wilson, perhaps we ought to do another project. And maybe the way to do it is to get someone like myself to front it and maybe if we could launch something like a crowdfunding exercise mm. we could get a victor owned by the people for the people which i think would be a wonderful thing to do so um watch this space brilliant um, however you. i've got two questions for you <laughs> one question is do you remember how many times the Harrier was refueled? I think uh, I was told 17. That sounds quite a lot to me. Oh dear. 10. Really, I would have to go into some detail about what you mean by refueled. Uh, um, in in mid-air, I mean between London and yeah, New York. Because the first thing is, as soon as he took off, he needed fuel urgently. Absolutely, yes. So, so we filled him up to begin with, and by the way, as the lead tanker, I didn't come on till last. Right, okay. The further you get away from land in something like a Harrier, the more fuel you want to have on board. Indeed, yes. So as we got closer and closer to the midpoint, even though there was a destroyer uh, with a, a platform on it, just in case, mm. um, the further you, you, the further you get away from land, the more fuel you want. We were virtually in contact for the last 15 minutes, non-stop. Wow. There's another thing that was quite interesting. It, it was quite tricky flying because mm. we were used to flying for range, endurance, that sort of thing. We were flying for speed. Mm. In the middle of the Atlantic, rules on flight levels and that sort of thing were pretty tight because mm. there's not much... Airways control. When we trailed our hoses, there's quite a lot of drag for a poor little Harrier. And believe it or not, the Victor was actually quicker than the Harrier. In that, in, and when the Harrier picked up that, the basket, uh, yes. it made an, another loss of speed. So we did what was called tobogganing. So as soon as you were in contact, very gently you'd start losing height to maintain speed. Wow. And then cruise climb again when you disconnected. So uh, in, in terms of how many times, I wouldn't like to say exactly because it was nip and tuck, you know, when we were in the middle, we were in contact all the time. Fantastic. Can I just say we have not really introduced you. Can you give everyone your name? My name is Alex Pickering. Uh, I uh, was a V-bomber pilot for most of my time in the air. And you were also an apprentice here? I was also an apprentice on this particular site at the apprentice training school up the top of the uh, test hill. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to see a little bit more of Alex in the future, don't you? Yeah. Thank you, sir.
but I'm very intrigued by the suggestion of the uh, Victor project. And um, I have a question for you, if I may. Um, could I invite you around to dinner? Um, and would, would I mind, would you mind when you table the idea of the Victor project if I went and hid in the bedroom? <laughs> Thank you. The answer is yes. There is two answers. Okay. The answer, of course, is yes, but I, I must uh, impart to you my axorial problems uh, on this particular event because we obviously share certain difficulties. When I came home, she said, the first time in my life I've known where you are and what you're doing because we broadcast from the... Uh, from from the victors, um, Fantastic. and Jack DeManio, who I think yeah, was yeah. a latter day um, uh, John Humphreys, uh, put put us on the on on the on the radio. Unfortunately, I was deemed to be too busy to do that. So Colin Seymour, who was oh. flying the number two lead tanker, um, uh, was detailed to do the radio commentary. Oh, fantastic. It's interesting, isn't it, because Tom said to me, the thing is, there were a number of bureaucrats who tried to say this was too dangerous to put a, an aircraft into the air across central London and have all these helicopters buzzing around and all the coal dust and everything, and they actually tried to stop it. But he said, we just decided we were going to go anyway. <laughs> and I think that that is just something that we've lost in this country, isn't it? That ability to say, come on, let's get behind this and let's make this happen. And I think we need a bit of that back. And if there's anything I can do to get that spirit back into this country, then I will. Mm. Another, another question. Yes, sir. I'll sit down and wait. So that was set it in mind. Having ascertained that yours is the actual Harrier that I refueled, I thought it would be fun to get in, 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 in touch with some of the pilots I dealt with at the time. John Farley, Mike Adams, who did the early tests. Mike was planned to be the pilot for the air race, but sadly damaged his back in an accident. Uh, Harrier uh, Olio collapsed when he was taxiing. And um, so uh, he was replaced by Tom Leckie Thompson. After a little bit of research, I found uh, and was able to ring Tom, who's alive and kicking and very much uh, a fun guy, went over and we got on like a house on fire, as many flying people do seem to uh, get on well with, with each other. Having not spoken to him for 50 years, it was nice to be able to say, Last time I spoke to you was at 40,000 feet over the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, that's quite something to say. Yeah, we had a couple of curries and the idea of responding to your request for a talk was to go ahead and do it. it and Tom and I would do it, share it half and half. He'd do the race bit and I'd talk about flight refueling. So we thought this would work well. Unfortunately, the uh, dreaded coronavirus got in the way and that was shelved for a bit and so this is really how I'm here now. So it's an unusual thing I think to, to be involved in refueling like this. How did you actually get into that in the first place? Um, I think the, I'm, I'm talking now in the early 60s um, when I was going through flying training in the Air Force and uh, the V-Force were expanding at that time and all of a sudden with two pilots in an aeroplane they, they needed a lot of people quickly. Uh, I had gone through on a fast course um, of all university air squadron people, in other words people who got, got some four or five hundred hours on chipmunks and we were rushed through on an abbreviated course and got onto a squadron very quickly and I got sent to the base at um, Honington which was the Victor Wing which was uh, two squadrons of Victors, Victor 57 squadron and 55 squadron but they were just desperate for people and I didn't even finish my course at, at uh, um, 
valley where we were at, on flying vampires. Uh, so I, I got, got double quick promotion into the V-Force and had the good fortune of being involved in moved, we were just moving to low level, which was great fun. So I got to know the, the Victor in double quick time in the low level role. And then all of a sudden, the Valiant Force fell to bits. Now that's a sad political story because the, the Valiant, which was probably the first serious jet tanker anywhere that really worked, it worked its way properly, I would argue internationally as well as for the RAF. And the Valiant had done sterling work uh, with the Lightnings and other V-Force aircraft at the time. Uh, and um, suddenly they found, because of the squadrons that were allocated to NATO in the low level role, they were um, cracking their spars. Our dear Prime Minister of the time, Harold Wilson, was forever having high pressure from his political left wing and CND to get rid of anything nuclear or anything spacking of military. And so he weakened and dissembled the, the, the Valiant force completely, which meant that our only tankers that we had, we were left without tankers because the, the, the two squadrons of Val Valiant tankers, that's 214 and 90 squadron, uh, were grounded and had nowhere to go. And we, had, we were, the Air Force was without a tanker. Politically coincidental with this, there was the need to just deploy in vast measure to east of Suez because weakening to the left wing again, Harold Wilson uh, had declared that we no longer needed as many troops or support of the pink bits on the map as they were then. Um, so we rather lost the ability to, to have uh, a, 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 the presence that we needed to support them. So Harold trumpeted a fast reaction deployment from UK, which meant you'd be able to get a couple of squadrons of lightnings, for example, to Singapore in a matter of days. Now, there's no way you can do that without flight refueling. Yeah, it's obviously uh, pretty technical business to do this. I mean, how do you actually teach a pilot to carry out this refueling in the air? Well, that's quite interesting because what we intended to do on this talk when it, when it was a live talk was to give you a pilot's eye view uh, because Tom, Tom and I between us had got all the experience you need to teach people how to flight refuel let's say a Harrier or a Lightning or whatever but specifically a Harrier in this case so we planned with our qualifications as qualified flying instructor, instrument rating examiner, graduate of Empire Test Pilot School, and flight refueling instructor, was adequate for us to teach your audience how to fly in one quick and easy lesson, fly across the Atlantic, refueling on the way. So that was the plan. So we're trying to do it from the pilot's eye view. The first thing we'd start to do is say, you need to get it right. Getting 99% of the way, having a, passing enough fuel to get 99% of the way leaves you very wet. So you need to have 100 plus. So that's the first thing we have to do. Luckily, I've got some films that I'll be able to show you the way it's done, it's pretty easy really. All you do is you go into the line of stern position, take a line of sight up the hose, open your throttles very gently and climb up the hose direction 
until you contact into the into the drove. You then drive up a little bit further as you as you get 10 foot in or thereabouts it opens the fuel valve automatically. The fuel flows, you get your green light and you hold that position fairly close to the aircraft in front until you've had enough fuel and then you gently reduce the throttles and back out which shuts off the fuel. Orange, the lights turn from green to orange and you're complete. Okay, so it's fairly easy. Well, perhaps it's slightly more difficult than that. It's I think it probably is. <laughs> it's pretty dead easy if you do it when conditions, when you can see, when, it, when it's good visibility, when you've got a good horizon, when you haven't got any, uh, when you haven't got any uh, problems with with uh, clear air turbulence or anything like that, if the drogue is hanging in a perfect condition. However, uh, in reality, life isn't quite like that, and we need to cater for the worst whilst hoping for the best. So the principle is easy. All you do now is say to say to my student, "Here are you have control. You do it," and he'll try and do that and he'll miss and probably miss at his first half a dozen tries until he's exhausted sweating and, and profaning that he's going to do it next time and you start, have to stop them after half an hour or 40 minutes and say time to have a rest for a bit I'll just show you and you do it plonk of mm. course what it is it's a knack it's not a skill and it's an act that some people can get very easily. And you just feel it's right and it goes. So there we are. That's how it says not very difficult to teach somebody. You just uh, it's, not, it's a piece of cake, Alex, I think. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be able to do that, no problem. Um, we, we've talked about the, the political situation in the 60s, the Suez crisis, uh, and the need to get the lightning um, to uh, scenes. Um, so what, what do you think are the, the characteristics that are needed to make a, a good airborne tanker? Very interesting question and it's interesting to compare what's good with what we, what we had. Right, there's one thing that trumps everything else and that's the ability to give away fuel. So you need to be able to take as much fuel as you can and have excess the, instead of having a bomb load you have a Bombay tank full of fuel 30,000 pounds of fuel in your Bombay tank to give away or as much as you're able so this means in reality the ability to lift it off the ground so runway performance is everything if you want runway performance you need power and sadly, I have to say that the Victor Mark I, which was probably better than all the other V-bombers of its time, at the time, was better in every, in every manner except the ability to lift fuel off the runway, which at one time is a sad thing for the Victor. And another thing it made for, the, for, for us as refuelers, it made life much more fun and much more interesting because it became de rigueur to, to go buddy-buddy, in other words, two to take off together, one to give all his fuel away as quickly as possible, and then every bit as quickly as possible into the secondary tanker. The Victor, the best of these tankers, do you think, or haven't you experienced with others? Well, no, it was, it was it, it was very flexible and it worked well uh, as a tanker it couldn't lift enough off the, off the, off the ground let's just think for a moment about what this meant it meant 
you hadn't got much fuel to give away unless you could buddy buddy and reduce the trip trip time the sum of the two aircraft if you could make that the the sum of the airborne time of both tankers if you could make that add that together and keep it as low as possible that means one tanker has got to give away as much fuel as possible in the shortest possible time and get back on the ground and then there's the maximum amount of fuel available in the one remaining tank and so that principle we used a lot so we had to practice a lot at buddy buddy refueling and get everybody to do that in the early stages we only had a two-point tanker that was 55 squadron was equipped with that i was in 57 squadron luckily, luckily the squadron that was first equipped with the b2 b, uh, with the bk three point tankers which gave us the two pods 20b pods one on each wing which enabled us to fuel two aircraft concurrently which is i think unusual i'm not sure of another tanker who, who was equipped like that or uh, and then the, the three point the third point in the center for for large aircraft or if you just need to refuel one aircraft so operationally it was good in many ways but in the one important point of getting off the ground it was pretty poor as a, a, bit as a tanker it was a very very good warm-up <laughs> uh, what about the valiant i mean obviously um with brooklands we're we're interested in the vickers aircraft and the valiant was all the valiants were made at brooklands um, what do you think of that particular aircraft well a lovely aircraft I was very sad about the spa, number of spars that weren't replaced in it, but it put me in good stead personally, uh, because um, ha having been involved in the building of few victors, of a few valiants, perhaps Brooklands when I was an apprentice, uh, that would have been in the late 50s. The, the valiant was limited. It could, I think it could only give away fuel from the Bombay tank. So it hadn't got the flexibility. We, we could give away a whole lot if you were foolish enough to so do. <laughs> but this is all to get over the fact that we had a very poor performance in the runway. Uh, I'd like to show you this uh, the, in, the, uh, in the event. There's a, a clip that shows a Victor taking off from Tengu uh, using every bit of the runway. I have a little story to tell about. I did one special op, uh, which was at GAN. I was the first person to take a full tanker off from GAN. What we used to do was take a squadron of lightning to reinforce Tango in, in, uh, in the middle of Singapore Island. And you fly for, for various reasons, uh, political and um, practical. You fly a, a group of multiple tankers, maybe a couple of tankers, and maybe four, six, or eight lightnings from middle of Europe to Tenga, stopping off at Gam. So now Gan is a thousand miles from anywhere in Aduatl in the Maldives, just about on the equator. And there's nothing there apart from a runway. And there's only one runway, your nearest diversion is a thousand miles away at Sri Lanka, at Colombo. So we thought that what happens, always planning for the worst and hoping for the best, what happens if the first lightning to land were to shred a tile on landing. You'd be stuck with six or eight lightnings all running out of fuel fast and a couple of tankers also running out of fuel fast and you've got a dilemma and so the four captains of the victors were in real real uh, difficult trick because don't forget we're talking technologies of the 60s now 
Mm. Technologies of the sexes, you hadn't got computers. They were not available. So you couldn't put in a couple of programs and get out the answer. You had to hold in here what, what your eight chicks and three light, um, Victor tankers, how much fuel each of them have gone and what, what you've got to sacrifice if need be. So we decided, we worked out a plan of getting, uh, pre-placing a tanker on GAN, filling it up with the maximum possible fuel that it could lift off the runway and waiting until all the aircraft. So he was there with plenty of fuel if there was a need for time while they sorted themselves out, if they had to move a lightning off the one runway within a thousand miles. So I was the first person to do this and we pushed it as hard as we could by filling to the maximum possible that we could calculate from the books as lifting off. We then put in 3,000 pounds of extra fuel. These figures I can remember quite clearly. Um, line up on the runway with a, on the apron, hundred, squeezing as much, 150 yards instead of 300 yards uh, to line up. And sat there with the engines running at 90% to burn off fuel down to, to burn off the 3,000 pounds extra, having previously checked the actual wind pressures, temperatures, and, and everything that affected our takeoff run. So we waited until the lightnings were on finals, and then with two minutes to go, went up to 100%, and off we went, at what seemed an incredibly slow acceleration. I wish I'd been in the tower, because it transpired that halfway down the runway, the senior officer in the tower said, my God, they're not going to make it. Hit the crash button, all the fire engines on GAN materialized as we just scraped off the end of the runway, throwing up, and if anybody's been to GAN, they'll realize that the runway, end of runway C. The lower you speed, you, you stay, the higher the speed, and what you want is to the critical thing is speed. Every ounce of speed you, you can get helps you, and the staying low helps you because it reduces the induced drag due to ground effect. So I was throwing up a, a, a line of spray for, for the next five miles, and they didn't believe it had happened. I wish I'd been in the tower to watch it. It must have been quite spectacular, I should think. We, we were too busy to worry. To worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. worried about getting up, yeah. yeah. You mentioned this as a, a special operation. Now, obviously, um, some of these things were, were covered by the Official Secrets Act, so we don't want to be going breaking any laws. Um, but uh, are there any other sort of special operations that spring to mind that you can talk about? Well, obviously, the, the air race was one of them, because the air race was so different from our usual uh, mode of operation because we're always, shall we say, obsessed with um, economy, either for range or for endurance. So I can think of um, special operations. Uh, um, the air race is, is so different from our normal operation. Um, the ability to refuel gives you the ability to get to places where people don't expect you to be. So if you want to go and, for example, sniff the atmosphere by a nuclear test in the Pacific, then you can fill up with fuel because that gives you a huge amount of, at height, a huge amount of range if you if you are in a Victor SR, for example, with uh, uh, the ability to sniff. And nobody would expect to see you there because there isn't any way you could have taken off and had the range to get there and back. So things like that we used to do, get involved with, not always knowing what we were doing. Um, other things, I 
kind of claim the Falklands, although my days were over by then. However, lots of my students who I taught to refuel were on the Falklands operation back up, which you probably are, are aware of, the bobbing of Fort Stanley runway, which, to be honest, was a, a political statement, more of a question to Galtieri, I think. By the way, fella, we can get to you with our nuclear bombers without you needing to know where we've come from. So that, I would claim, a, a virtual Falkland. Because of our ability through flight refueling to stay airborne for long periods of time, and because of our communications fit, we could act as airborne control posts. In other words, we could be set up as uh, head office, if you like, in a war situation, uh, in what was called an air, airborne control, basically airborne control post. We did carry uh, still one of the, when we refit in the, into being tankers, as opposed to bombers, we did retain a number of electronic warfare uh, things. For example, not a lot of people knew that we carried some four and a half tons of ECM electronic countermeasures equipment in the victim, which enabled us to do naughty things, to listen to what our adversaries were doing. Uh, Everybody knows about Gary Powers and the U2. Well, he wasn't over Russia by accident. He was over Russia because he, they thought they could get away without being caught. Uh, not quite true in that case. Other emergencies were that we dealt with, which I could call as a special operation. We used to provide a service to British Aircraft Corporation, now at the end of our, our time, to deliver aircraft. For example, the Saudis uh, bought a whole lot of Mark 56 Lightning, and we would give them a quick shakedown test, check that they were all refueling all right, and just give them one hop from Wharton, where they were built, to the Saudi air base in. Uh, obviously uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia in one hop without, without the need for further support. So <clears throat> on this one occasion, we'd been, we'd finished the test and just about to say goodbye and this lightning pulled up beside us and gave a little waggle of his wings to indicate I'd lost my ability to speak or hear. So there was a lightning above nine ninths, Scout Clover, hoping to recover to Wharton. So he tucked in. There were, we, we had got uh, some hand signals that we could use. And you never thought you would, but you did on this occasion. And so we got him to sit closely on our wingtip as we flew into Wharton and did a uh, let down into Wharton, and I'll show you what a let down involves uh, towards the end of this presentation. So we broke cloud at 150 feet, and I was beginning to sweat on the belt then, and gave a little waggle and said goodbye, and had a very nice present in, uh, from Wharton as a thank you for saving a lightning. So there's a few examples of the kind of operations you have as a tanker that you might never get if you were doing some other activities. Yeah, it certainly sounds uh, quite exciting, terrifying stuff sometimes, I should think. Um, we heard a bit about how you deliver the fuel. Um, what about the pilot of the, the fighter that's receiving? Is there anything special that he needs to think about whilst refueling? Short-range fighter-type aircraft are far more responsive to the controls than uh, things like heavyweight victors and, and that sort of thing. And the difference between being light and heavy makes a huge difference to the response. So there are a few things that when we 
get to it, I'd quite like to talk about the actual implementation of, of making contact and passing through. But for a, I, I've only got first hand experience of comparing flying a lightning to compare it to, to a victor when it comes to, to receiving. And with, without bragging too much, he said, ho ho. Yeah. From the pilot's eye point of view, I've done quite a number of prods, that's connections, uh, practice connections, probe into drogue with a lightning, and never in my life missed. So uh, that, that's, I can't say the same thing about a victim because uh, when you come to refueling in a victim, uh, there's a, a difference between um, what you would think and what you would expect and what actually happens. Suppose instead of being immediately behind in the perfect line of stern position, you're a little bit out, let's say to the left. Let's exaggerate a bit and say half a span to the left. Your eyes, which are your primary sense of perception, tell you I'm out to the left, I need to correct. So I'm going to bank a little bit to the right and then I start moving across and very soon I'll be immediately behind. By which time I think, oh yes, I better stop now. And so I level the wings and I've got translation, translation left to right speed. And so that carries me through the middle and I have to bank left to correct it and get back to the center again. And you can see how this will, if you're not careful, very quickly become unstable. Let's just think of something else to superimpose on that. You're half a span out to the left. Your right wing is influenced by the downwash from the tanker. The closer you get, the bigger that downwash. Your left wing, your port wing, is out in clear air. So the downwash is giving you a strong turning moment in towards in reinforcing your intuitive desire to turn to the right. So that's going to take, take you through double. So what you need to do is just give it a little twitch and then counter the load that, that the differential of left and right wing downwash is making. So you're counterintuitive, you're actually taking the load off that twisting force and so you're resisting rather than carrying through. So that's counterintuitive, you have to train yourself to think in terms of that. So actually what you're really doing is you're phase advancing by 90 degrees. Anybody who's studied, who's studied a uh, sinusoidal motion, we know that that's a phase advance by, by 90 degrees. Once you get that, you've got to realize that the same thing is happening fore and aft, because the closer you get, the more the tailplane comes closer and closer until it's finally in the jet wash. And that gives you a nose up trim change. So the closer you get, the heavier the trim load and you can see that that is undesirable. So you're naturally getting closer due to this downforce on your tail. Luckily, psychologically, there's a very strong tendency to uh, self-preservation and you don't ever get that close because of that good old fashioned fear. However, this fear demands that you take throttle off and lo and behold, you then start, everybody knows the jet engine runs down very quickly, but it doesn't speed up very quickly. So you've got to take the, the throttle off and then feed it back on quickly. So you're in unstable, side to side, fore and aft, up and down. And it's, this is where the knack comes in. It's got to look right, if it looked right, it works. The final thing that happens is if you're going side to side, the drogue 
is coming towards you until you're getting very close. When you're getting very close, the slipstream induced for the air to go around your nose tends to take the drogue out. And unless you're immediately right under it, it's going to go, as you get closer and closer, it's going to gradually go outwards. And so you're going to turn towards it and it's going to go pop over the top to the other side, which is very frustrating. Yeah, it, it all sounds, um, to me, it all sounds quite complicated. There must be a, a high uh, demand on you and the crew when you're flying these, these missions. Um, I mean, how do you recover from those missions? And, and really, um, when did it all end for you? That's a very nice question because I like the term recover. Um, one of the things you build up to when you're te teaching something to refuel is what's called a backslow transfer. And this is quite a nasty, long, sweaty affair because first of all, you make contact with the aircraft's light and it's relatively easy because you're getting the hang of it by the time you're coming up to your what amounts to final handling test. So you make contact fairly easily and you're then transferring fuel from one aircraft to the other. By the way, quite a high transfer rate something like a ton, ton and a half a, sec, a, a minute and that's you getting heavier with the aircraft in front getting lighter so that's another instability that you have to compensate for all the time so you after 20 minutes of doing this which is about what a bachelor transfer takes you're beginning to feel a bit tired the concentration's been there quite a lot Hopefully your co-pilot's been looking after the fuel tray and where the fuel all goes, because that's all happening very quickly. So you're taking fuel on and it gets heavier and heavier. And we now simulate worst cases. Oh my God, last minute dropout. And you've then got to make, because 99% of fuel to get somewhere is not enough. You've got to get back in and get that last 1% which you need. So the last final test is practicing getting contact and you've got to be able to make contact again after 20 minutes of sweating before you're allowed to recover. You've got to reconnect. Okay, assume you've done that, you've passed. Sorry, not quite. You've got to do it in the dark. So that's what you build up to when you're teaching somebody. And hopefully at the end of his final handling test, final refueling test, he's learned and he's got the back. And then you have to recover. So then the recovery, well, when you've had enough, you need to disconnect and you need to work very, very quickly and very hard to be sure you've got enough fuel to get where you plan to go, unless you're going to just dump it and, and give it back to somebody else for, for training purposes. Tariq, you've always got that nasty niggle if you're in a cr critical operation and going on somewhere and you've got a distance to go, that you have just enough or not just enough fuel, or you've given away too much, or something like that. So you have to do a recount. I guess it's easier now with computers. I'm sure they can do it, but in the 60s, we didn't have that facility. So it, it, was, it was good in those days. So you recover often as a pair together to, to enable you to to, uh, uh, you'll see, hopefully you can see the sequence. You start off with using throttle and air brakes to, to let down, lose your speed to get to take off flaps. Then as the aircraft slows down, you lower the undercarriage and the drag comes up and the throttles increase. 
then your flaps you've got down to flap speed and now you're using the air brakes against the throttle in the final stages of the landing and finally you say goodbye to the shepherd and you flare out and you land the final bit you do is the brake shoot and if your brake shoot works it's the final need for concentration because you could have a crosswind and there's a temptation to jettison this brake shoot too, too early because it's quite big if it works it works if it doesn't work you could be lots of little wheels with lots of very hot brakes in them. So you've recovered now. As a good training captain, I always used to excuse myself by saying, oh, I think I'll take a rest now. You need the practice if I was with my unicopilot. You need the practice, so I'll, I'll just sit here and leave you to finish off the work for me. So in terms of recovering, it makes me think of the next generation, next generation of aircraft, after I left the, the Air Force, very soon the Mark II was used. And although I flew the Mark II a few times, it was, it's had the wonderful virtue of having a hugely bigger engine upgrade. And so you can lift off that critical amount of fuel much better. So the Victor Mark II was the first next generation then the VC-10 and other transport-based aircraft that makes your life much less critical because you do things like take your ground crew with you if you're going somewhere out of the way. And of course the, the final thing is now the Airbus type based tanker uh, which is much better. As a teacher I hope that one seeks ever to improve and get better and bring on the next generation. So let the student surpass the teacher, give the student the maximum amount of opportunity. And that's the way I used to recover by giving my student the maximum experience level for training and recovery at the end. He then has to buy me a pint in the it's uh, obviously a highly skilled um, thing to do. Um, now you, you obviously came to the end of you, your flying career. Um, that must have been a bit of a, a wrench to leave it, I guess, at that point. Uh, and then, what, what did you do after all that? I got involved in uh, the computing industry. I did a bit of work with uh, the specialist metals, traded metals uh, organization, uh, which introduced me to commercial work. But I then joined a well-known international computer company, IBM, and had a lot of fun with them. But nothing could replace the, the the delights of flight refueling. You'd, you'd get to uh, altitude on a really nasty wet day and say, and they pay me to do this. It's hardly credible. Uh, it's, it's certainly an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, okay, thank you very much, Alex. It's been really interesting today. Uh, we do hope to have you back at Brooklands at some stage, maybe with Tom. Um, but in the meantime, of course, we do have that 1969 uh, Transatlantic Harrier in our first fastest exhibition, um, which the museum is now open and you can come and see. Thank you very much, Alex. That's splendid. I really appreciate the chance to uh, hand on a bit of experience of flight refueling. Well, thanks. It's been fun.